real life superpowers giving feedback which is like such a big thing in the world like yeah you know and you've got books about how to give feedback and how to be you know ruthlessly honest and to you know just tell people like it is because it's for their own good it, it's actually not um uh it, it often backfires because there is a huge difference between telling someone what's happening and what you like and what you don't like and what their problems are and actually helping them get better and the goal of feedback is to support development but so often feedback doesn't support development hey everyone i think it's fair to say that in order to be successful and live a fulfilled life you need to change and grow which makes today's episode a valuable listen to anybody who wants to do just that and to make more impact on the people around them. In the episode, we speak with Peter Bregman and Howie Jacobson, authors of You Can Change Other People, the four steps to help your colleagues, employees, even family up their game. Peter is the number one executive coach in the world, best-selling author of five books and host of Bregman Leadership Podcast, a top 10 business podcast with over 1.5 million downloads. He coaches C-level executives in many of the world's premier organizations, His work appears frequently in the Harvard Business Review, Business Week, Fast Company, Psychology Today, Forbes, CNN, and NPR. He's created and leads the number one leadership development program in the world, the Bregman Leadership Intensive. He's given four TEDx talks, regularly delivers keynotes. The list goes on. Howie is an executive coach to leaders ranging from startup founders to Fortune 100 executives. He's director of coaching at Bregman Partners and head coach at the Healthy Minds Initiative. He's also the host of the Plant Yourself podcast and author of four more books. His writings have also appeared in Fast Company and Harvard Business Review. There's so much to be learned from these accomplished gentlemen. Check out the episode. I think it's not an exaggeration to say it'll probably inspire you to be better. Real Life Superpowers So, Peter, Howie, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Thank you. So nice to be here. Mm-hmm. So your new book drops on the 22nd of September, right? Yeah, 22nd. Yeah. How does it feel? Uh, it feels great. I mean, you, you know, in some ways, this book has been, you know, we've been writing it for a couple of years, but we've also been, in a sense, working on it for 30 years. So it's really nice to see it kind of in book form and go, wow, this actually, we actually were able to encapsulate what we wanted to in a couple of hundred pages. Do you feel like there's any stuff that you would do differently in retrospect? You know, not yet. After the podcast, I might say like, oh, you know, I think I would approach that a little differently, but, but I'm happy. I'm really, really happy with what we came out with. I mean, I think a book, you know, the minute you come out with a book, It's already old. You already like we've already had discussions about, oh, this is a new way to frame it that we didn't even think about a week ago. So you kind of have to let go like, you know, it's your kid. It's in the world. It's not it's no longer a reflection of you. <laughs> I guess because we are always changing because, you know, it is at the end of the day a reflection of you. But I understand completely what you're saying. And it's not your first rodeo. You both have successful books that you already published. Uh, did it help to write this book? Yeah, actually, that's a great question. It did. It's interesting because this book, how we actually want you share the story of how this book came about, and then then I'll share mm. something. Yeah, Peter has been doing coach trainings for a while, and I guess I, I went to I think the first one may have been twenty fourteen. And I go to all of them that I can because they're so helpful to me. It's like you know, it's like a gym. like you know, you can coach people. All day long but you're not necessarily getting better at it without feedback and challenge and a community so then uh, a couple of years ago Peter announced that this was his last one uh, it was at Esalen and I was there I was sort of assisting and learning as always I'm just I'm confused because normally coaching is like one-on-one -on -one and this is something that's in a group it was a training teaching people how to coach oh okay sorry okay training coaches right. so at the end I was like dude, this is too good to stop doing. Like, if you're not going to do it anymore, this material has to be somewhere. And, you know, I accidentally talked myself into becoming a, a writing partner. And uh, <laughs> I feel like, like this is too good, too well thought out, 
to to let just sort of languish in a in a file drawer somewhere. And you know what I what I love about it, and what I love about the process is, you know, yes, this is a couple, you know, this is like thirty years of coaching translated into a training program, and yet working with Howie, like I would I would explain things, and then he would start to drill in and question and discover and uncover sort of gaps and wait, but what about this? Or what kind of an example would you use there? And it forced us thinking together about it. It forced us to get really crisp and really clear in a way that, you know, I could kind of get away without being so much when I'm having conversations with people and I'm teaching, it, it gets a little messier. And so, it, you know, it was really, really fun. I've contributed to lots of books and I've written my own books, but I've never written with a co-author. Like I've never written together with someone. And it was a really great, great experience. And I think it was like amazing how much crisper my thinking became. How do you do that with another person? Like who worked harder? I could tell you how he worked harder. Uh, <laughs> and, and I could tell you how it worked a lot, which is that I don't think as well when I'm sitting at a desk at a computer and it was COVID. We wrote this during COVID and I was in the Catskills. I was upstate New York and we, I'm usually in New York City. So I would, we would start a conversation and then I would say, hey, Howie, do you mind if I go for a walk in the woods and we continue this conversation while I'm walking in the woods? And he would say, I wish I could too, but you go. And he was very generous about that. And so I would like take a hike up a mountain for a couple of hours and we would talk through things. And then, and then, you know, there would be, he would put a bunch of stuff on paper and then we would, you know, kind of fine tune it and, and, and play with it. But it was, for me, it was an incredible, it was the most pleasurable book I've ever written, you know, because I think Howie did so much of the heavy lifting. Uh, thank you, Howie. And, and I did a lot of walking. <laughs> well, you also did a lot of the heavy lifting in the 30 years before we, you know, the 28 years before we started <laughs> okay, fair enough. writing. So <laughs> no man is an island. Yeah. You know, yeah. I really feel that there's something really beautiful about it because it's like the, the joint knowledge that was able to synthesize what you already were doing uh, into something very accurate or clear. Yeah. It was a real pleasure to, to realize when we didn't know something because we couldn't, you know, yeah, I know this, but I can't exactly put it in words. Or we put it in words and there's gaps. So it really was, you know, going like when, you, when you're doing, when Peter, you know, Peter's been doing coaching, but there were elements of what he was doing that, frankly, neither of us really understood fully until we said, well, is this the framework? No, not exactly. Not always. Like what's, what's the, 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 the DNA of it? And I think we, I think we've got it because we've been, we've been now uh, explicitly using this new methodology, and it seems to work just as well or better than than what we thought the old stuff was. Did you try it on yourselves? Oh, all the time, all the time. I I keep wanting Howie to coach me on stuff, and then certainly we tried it outside. And I also found it's interesting. I mean, Howie is such a close friend, and he was very patient with me. But I found myself sometimes getting frustrated. Like he would ask me a question, I'd be like you know, I just, that, that's what I do. Like, that's, this is, you know, like you just asked that question, but where did that question come from, Peter? I don't know. It was just like the right question. I don't know where it came from. And, and he would keep pushing me and I would be like, you know, kind of annoyed, but I'm happy that he stuck with it because, you know, together we clarified things that was really helpful. That's amazing. And I think also, you know, the difference between an answer being because it is uh, and because it's my authority, it's such a deeper level when you're able to explain it. And I think it's probably an expert's problem that the, the longer you're an expert, it sometimes becomes more complex to convey what you do. But I, I do believe that ultimately the best experts are the ones who are able to, as the Einstein quote, I think it's Einstein who says, if you're not able to explain it to a six-year-old, you don't really get it enough yourself. Right. I think that's a hundred percent true. And, you know, and it's interesting. Like, I think like I, you know, I know in, on your podcast, you, you work a lot, you talk a lot with people about their journeys. And, you know, for me, it was also, you know, part of the journey is I could sort of sit and focus on my laptop and just write, but I'm in my own head. And so I'm still thinking of a reader, but I'm still in my own head. And 
Yeah, I know for me, my best thinking is in collaboration, is in conversation, is in, you know, how he's brilliant. And so it's like in in the questions he asks and the conversations we have and the testing. And it's new for me. I mean, it's like, you know, I run my own company and I when I'm coaching, I'm one on one. And and this last couple of years, I've been doing a lot more work with people. For the first time ever, I actually you sort of say coaching is one on one. A good friend of mine and mentor, Marshall Goldsmith. Um, he and I have been coaching someone. We've been coaching the CEO of Kindbar. We've been coaching him together. Like the two of us have been coaching him together. And it's it's amazing when you open up how much you learn from other people and how much you share and how much better the work becomes when you're able to kind of collaborate and think. And then how much closer the relationships become and the whole experience of life you know, becomes better in, in that kind of collaboration has been my experience. We, we interviewed someone who said this, I'm looking if you agree or not, the speed and the quality, because when you collaborate, you're A-B tasting and usually the quality is better, but it does take longer to synchronize between two people as opposed to going forward quickly and, you know, getting maybe the quality less because we're just one person and not getting any feedback. So like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, it went faster because I felt like I was accountable to somebody else. <laughs> like, you know, there was a lot of, there, there could have been, there was a lot of pressure on me that I felt, but it was all pressure to produce numbers of words, not quality of words. Like it, it, it would have been very tough to collaborate with someone who would have looked at my writing and critiqued it right away because the writing, the first draft was terrible. Peter, I don't know if you've gone back to like our folders, like I, I you know, every so often I'm looking for something and I go back to like the first draft or the the proposal draft with those chapters and it is terrible. And you know, if you had told me that, <laughs> it would have been crushing. But we're like, okay, great, let's let's keep you know let's keep moving forward, let's keep working on this. And at a certain point, we, we both sort of were able to step away and attack the body of work rather than attacking each other. And I feel like the, you know the amount of trust that you had in me to, 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 you know, to sort of stare at the blank page and start writing, knowing, like, I, you know, as I said, we've written other books before, we know how bad the first draft is. And it could have been a problem when you're showing your first draft to someone else who's only used to your final copy. But uh, I think it was, it was very useful and, and just beautiful to, um, you know, to just be, there was no competition. It's just like totally... Uh, appreciative of each other's gifts, which allowed, I hope, something good to come out of it. Yeah. Sorry. I just want to say two very quick things, which is one is when I wrote my thesis in college, I remember it was daunting. It was like, you know, I had to write a hundred pages. Like that was huge for me in college. And I made a deal with myself. I'm like, no matter what happens, I'm going to by the, by Monday morning, I will have written 20 pages every week. And so I did that. So I stayed up almost every Sunday night was an all-nighter. And I just made sure I had 20 pages. The difference was after I had my 100 pages, I was like, great, I'm going to hand this in. <laughs> and it wasn't such a great idea. Like, it was fine. I did fine. But it was not my best work. And here we sat down and, and we, we were doing it. We were creating it. And we were looking at it. And we were about two weeks from deadline. And I, I looked at the book with Howie, like we looked at the book and then we called our publisher and I said, I've never done this with a book before, but we're not going to make the deadline because we have the book written, but I don't like it. It's not good. Like, I don't want to put a book out that's not good. And our book right now is not good. What was the reaction? Well, you know, he said, you know, I've, I've worked with him before, so we have a certain amount of trust. And I also said, look, we'll give it to you. Look at it. And you decide if it's good or not. But I'm telling you, it's like not good. And he was like, okay, I could buy, you know, as long as he negotiated. He was like, as long as you get it in by this date, and as long as you're willing to review the copyrighted pages in a week instead of two weeks, you know, as long as like, I could buy you some time up front, as long as you give me back some time on the back end. And I said, fine. And literally... In the three or four weeks that we had left for the book, we literally cut the book in half. We literally took out 50% of the words 
and and then gave it back. And and our our agent and our publisher and everybody was like, wow, so happy we did this. Like you just made this a good book. Just because it wasn't a good book before. And and by cutting half the words out and we just made it crisp and clear and simple and There's a famous quote by Mark Twain that he said, I would have written a shorter letter, but I didn't have enough time. Exactly. I love that quote. It's totally true. And maybe the difference between your thesis and this is that I don't know how passionate you were about your thesis, but I'm, I'm going to bet that you were probably more passionate about this book than about your thesis. Are you allowed to be passionate about theses at all? Is, is that a, isn't there a legal law about that? <laughs> That's a very good question. I was, I was burnt out when it came to my thesis. I mean, I, might, I wrote my thesis about the Holocaust. I wrote my thesis about popular response to anti-Jewish legislation in Lyon during World War II. So it was like very specifically a place in I'm, France and how did people respond to anti-Jewish legislation? And I had written another paper, 50 page paper on the Klaus Barbie trial. And so at this point I was like, all right, I'm done. Like, I just like want to stop thinking about the Holocaust for a little bit. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's, it's an important yet not a very delightful topic. But uh, um, partnerships, let's talk about that. So how do you know this is a good partnership and how do you know, like, how to communicate the difference because you met at some point. Okay. And now you have to collaborate and each one is in, you know, a different character with its own experience in entrepreneurship, which comes together with, you know, we're divas. So uh, how, how, like, how did that work? And how do you go through the constraints of the collaboration so quickly through COVID, which is probably uncomfortable as is. It's interesting because we've collaborated for over 20 years And the collaboration has gotten much better. And I can, you know, for, for myself, I've become a much better collaborator, partly through our, like, we've had rough, rough patches where, like, I was, you know, you, you brought me in for something and you didn't really like the way I did it. Or, you know, that I was bringing a different kind of energy to it, or I was focused too much on what I was getting out of it rather than what I was giving. Like, there've been, we've had some hard conversations And what has helped me partly is just getting that feedback because nobody gives me negative feedback, you know, in a work setting. People either like, why would they? They would either just not hire me again or they like me, you know, and if they like me, like why, why stir up that possible hornet's nest and give somebody, you know, constructive feedback. So I almost never get it at work. At home, I get it, not, not you know, <laughs> But, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, so, but Peter was willing to, to have those hard conversations, to say them in a way that, you know, he's, he's, that's his thing is like, you know, helping people develop. So it was, it was nice to be given honest feedback by someone who was really interested in development. And Peter was also very upfront and willing to take responsibility for his parts. So it, it wasn't like, love at first sight in terms of collaboration. It was, you know, very much like any kind of working relationship where you, you get stronger through the challenges. And do you feel like you were able to apply your method uh, within the communication between the two of you? So for example, Peter, if you felt like you wanted uh, Howie to change something, then would you try to make him an ally and everything that we would love for you to, to tell us exactly how you tackle? Is that something that happens? Yeah. So two things. One is I love Howie. I love Howie. And so It's, it's painful when we have challenges in, in the relationship, but I, I, I never doubt his good intentions. Like I never for a moment, like sometimes it didn't work, but never for a moment did I doubt who he is as a human being. Like that was always really, really solid. And, and to your question, it's a really, really good question. And I want to take something how we said and talk about the methodology in relation to it, because giving feedback, which is like such a big thing in the world. Like, yeah, you know, and you've got books about how to give feedback, how to be, you know, ruthlessly honest and to, you know, just tell people like it is because it's for their own good. It's actually not. Um, uh, it, it often backfires because there is a huge difference between telling someone what's happening and what you like and what you don't like and what their problems are and actually helping them get better. And the goal of feedback is to support development. 
But so often, feedback doesn't support development. Feedback is an unloading, and I feel great after I've given feedback, and he feels terrible after I've given feedback. And I'm like, wow, I've been like, you know, super honest. I'm good. And the person's struggling, and then then we don't talk to each other for a couple of weeks because it's hard to see each other. And and then you sort of start to spiral, and you get worse because you're like, now I'm under the microscope, and I'm and feedback in in unskilled hands is and and without a process of development around it is actually incredibly harmful in many ways it actually both hurts the relationship and hurts performance and so the question we always have to ask is for the sake of what i'm giving feedback for the sake of what so they know the truth who cares like what's more important is can they get better? Can they up their game? Can they develop who they are as a person, as a colleague, as a collaborator? As a... And by the way, I wasn't always skilled at this. I, I gave people feedback and felt like, wow, that was very courageous of me to give them feedback. I feel good about myself. But did they get better? Not if I didn't follow it with a process. So to sort of really say, okay, now I'm, the, I'm an ally. I'm not a critic. Feedback is 90% of the time shows up as a critic. So I'm an ally. I want what's best for the other person. I want what's best for our nice. work together. I want. And so then the, you know, the question is, how do I help them get better at what it is? Or how do I help us get better? And that's much more than feedback. That's a reliable process that helps someone get from point A to point B. And that's what the book is about. The book is sort of saying the uh, cathartic. Uh, impact of feedback often doesn't get to where you want to go, but you can really help people change. You absolutely can. You just have to do it a little differently. The, the feedback that you're saying about the unloading, I'm sorry, I'm not an expert at this. So I'm, it's a perspective of someone that's getting the feedback that feels that you're unloading because you are unloading, but that's also good for you. So if I feel that you are unloading a feedback that's good, doing good for you, and I feel that I want you to feel better as well. It's a mutual trust value, isn't it? Yeah, the trust in the relationship is huge because, listen, there was, not, there was never a point where Peter gave me feedback or wanted to help me develop where I wasn't aware that I was screwing up in some way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It wasn't like I was blissfully ignorant and I thought, oh, I just did a fantastic job here. Maybe there was. Maybe there was like one time. <laughs> That was extra hard. But, it, you know, typically it's like, yeah, I'm struggling. So I'm already in a kind of neurological fight or flight mode. I'm already defensive. And a lot of us have that just from childhood trauma, from, from culture, from growing up. I think anyone who's a child of someone who went through the Holocaust has epigenetic sort of watching out for where the world is unsafe, <laughs> right? So, so not only do we have to develop trust within our relationship, we may have to sort of excavate a lot of sort of existential fear and shame and worry in the other person. So not just to go to be, a, you know, sort of a zero, but to create a, a relationship and an environment in which we are actively making the person feel safer than they naturally feel. And so to be able to, to give somebody guidance or help them develop within that feeling, like I'm safer listening to Peter tell me, here's a thing you did that I don't think was so helpful. And here's how I think we could you know, work on it. Like really feeling held, which, which, which allows me to take risks, which allows me to put, you know, putting words on paper is a risk. Like the blank page is very safe. You know, like having Peter model that, learning it for myself, and then starting to, you know, use that in the world, I think has made me a much better partner, parent, neighbor, friend, helper as well, which has been, you know, just a great joy. And, and, how, and okay, so, so how did you become what you become and why? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. One is how we first met is I, I met Howie and we had a, in, in, you know, in the town that we both went to college and we weren't in college at the time. We were in Princeton, but we were in, you know, we, we had both graduated for a while. And Howie was a teacher and I was running company and my coaching company. And we just got into a conversation. We met by a mutual friend and Howie was super interested and engaged. 
And I said, yeah, you know, like, here's a couple of books you can read if you want to. I might have given him the books. I can't remember if I gave him the books or if he, you know, I just kind of mentioned the books. And there's an article I was, you know, working on that, you know, around this stuff. And he, the next day, had read both books and had finished my article. And I looked at him like, I've never seen anybody absorb materials so quickly, translate it, understand how to use it, connect it, et cetera. So I hired him the next day to be my head of marketing. And that sort of started the relationship. But I think there's something else. Howie and I are both deeply committed to our own development. Like we have both done a tremendous amount of work on ourselves, facing you know, our limitations, being in process groups where we're slamming on cubes saying like, I hate this. You know, like the book I wrote before this one is called Leading with Emotional Courage, the willingness to feel everything, right? Which is, you know, which is at the heart of being able to do anything, right? If I'm willing to feel anger and shame and his hurt or my own hurt, or my, like, if I'm willing to feel all those things, then I can do anything. If I'm not willing to feel all those things, I'll never have the hard conversations. And I think we're both willing to hear it and to stay in connection. And this is part of what the process, and you can change other people, part of what the process is trying to help with is as soon as we go into shame, as soon as I feel shame about something, I immediately go into either denial or defensiveness. Because shame is incredibly painful to feel. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to feel shame. So I'll do almost anything not to feel shame, including deny or not even be able to see the thing that you're talking about. And I think that, you know, Howie has tremendous courage. I think I also have a lot of courage in in this desire to say, if there's something here, I'm not going to lose relationship with you. I'm going to stay in relationship with you no matter what's going on. And we will figure this out. I trust you enough as a person that how he may not like me at a certain point, or I may not like him, but we're going to stay in relationship around it. And I think that's, that's like not only the key commitment, I've seen people get married, divorced, get married, divorced, get married, divorced. And I'm thinking, like I'm no judgment around that. That's like marriage is super hard and like, and no judgment. But when I see it repeatedly around the same issues, I'm thinking they're not staying in it long enough to work through those issues. Right. And again, like, I hope no one's taking this as like judgment against, you know, decisions you make and, and because it's okay. We're both not divorced yet. Yeah. It's okay. So (laughs) no, no, no. But I'm just saying like, it's the challenges to stay in the relationship when it gets hard and work through it in relationship allows you to grow. It makes so much sense. I'm sort of intuitive here, but I'm remembering, and this is circling back to feedback more directly. I'm remembering a friend's brother about two decades ago made a relocation from Israel to Seattle to Microsoft. And he was telling us that it took him a very long time to understand how feedback was given because he was handing in work and the feedback that he got, and that's going to sound very familiar, is great job. And then there was a but with a list. And he read that. And he thought, high five, I'm rocking it. Like, okay, they have a few comments and issues with my stuff, but they said it's a great job. And I think that's not rare. And I think maybe because of a cultural gap, he was taking it like uh, to an extreme. But at the end of the day, I think many leaders don't really know how to give feedback that will actually help change what they need their team members to, to do, whether it's a small change or whether it's a big change that they need to really l- reflect and look into themselves. And I'd love for you to sort of talk to us a bit about the process and how you see it. I'll, I'll share the process and I want to share one other element of you know this process. Is we call it the four steps. You know, You can change other people. Here's four steps to be able to do it. Feedback is an incredibly hierarchical dynamic, right? Where I will tell you what you're doing wrong. And maybe if I think I'm really good at this, I'll tell you how to do it right. Coaching is inherently a mutual dynamic. So meaning I might give you feedback in coaching. I might say, you know, in fact, part of my coaching process, right? I coach CEOs and C-suite and Part of the coaching process is to go around and talk to everybody. I talk to all the leaders of the company. I talk to people down farther. I talk to the board. And I say, hey, let me share with you this feedback. Here's the feedback that I've received. And then instead of me saying, and I will tell you how to fix this, 
I say, let's think this through together. Let's figure out together, like, what are you seeing in this? Do you see it? Do you not see it? I'm not better than you. I've got some skills. You've got some skills. Let's think together about how to move forward. And it gives much more power to the person and it eradicates the shame element of it. So there's four steps in the process. The first step is to show up as an ally instead of a critic, right? Because almost always the, you know, the first element is like, oh, you know, you're criticizing me. Hey, uh, you're, you're super brilliant, but you're dressing sloppy. And that is turning off people so they're not able to hear your brilliance. So clean yourself up, right? That's a criticism, you know? So, so the first thing is to go, okay, like, let me get clear in my own body, in my own self. Like, what do I want for this person? Like, I want them to be successful. I think they're super brilliant. I want them to be really good. So like, it's coming from a, a good place. And then, then the second piece of it is, like, what do I imagine is going on for them? Like, why are they dressing sloppy? And I don't know, you know, we could explore it and find out, but I want to be clear that I'm not just painting them all dark. Like I can understand, like they're so focused on their ideas. They're just not paying attention to that piece or they don't feel that piece is important. Or there might've been something in their lives where, you know, they felt like the superficiality was so, so rewarded and so cared about and everybody missed what was inside that he didn't want to think about that part at all. And so all of these things could be happening, but I still want to be able to share with him. So then I'm going to go to him and I'm going to say, hey, you know, I've noticed this thing, right? I've noticed that you're, you're losing people and sometimes not for the right reasons. And I know about your capability. And I'm wondering if you're willing to think this through with me. Like, can we think about this together? So that's the first step. And there's a formula in there, which is empathy, express confidence and ask them permission to think it through with them. Like, so the controls in the, he might say, no, I don't want to think it through, in which case I have to be okay. So that's the first step. It's, it's being an ally and showing up as an ally and being willing to work together. Howie, you want to take the second step? Yeah. So the second step is to identify what we call an energizing outcome. So as coaches or as managers or as leaders, one of the things we're rewarded for is solving problems. So we love to find the problem and fix it, right? You get a lot of kudos for that. And so it's very, at that point, the person says, oh, sure, help me. Says, okay, let's, let's talk about the problem. And what that does is, again, we were talking about you know, the fight or flight or people being defensive. When we're problem focused, we're not being creative. We're not thinking about, you know, so if you think about like hunter gatherers, they're either looking for berries and roots and small animals, or they're trying to avoid, you know, predators. Survival mode. Yes, survival mode. So when we're focused on a problem, we're in survival mode and survival mode narrows our focus. It does all sorts of physiological things to us. It just makes us, we're not creative in that, in that mode. So by focusing on the outcome we, that they want, first of all, we now have a framework for what we're going for. And we're not going to get lost in distractions because everything's going to be, you know, it's like a GPS. You set the destination. Now you go off track 50 yards and it tells you, hey, you're going off track. Do you want to recalibrate, recalculate? But it, what it also does is it creates this within them and within us, this mutual feeling of optimism of there's an opportunity to go for. And when our brain senses opportunity, it opens up. It starts dopamine. seeing new possibilities. Dopamine. Yeah. Now, now we're on the hunt for something. There's a great difference between chasing something and being chased by something. Yeah. I love that sentence. And the next step. So in this example with the person who's dressing sloppy, it's not just to clean up. Like, what's the outcome you want? The outcome I want is for people to appreciate my ideas. The outcome I want is to have my audience engaged and influenced by the things I'm trying to tell them. Okay, so that's much different. That's much more interesting, right? Than saying, I want to be like clean and presentable. I don't want to stink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I don't want to smell versus I want my audience engaged and, and I, I want nothing getting in the way of their appreciating all of these ideas. Great. So now we look back at the problem and say, where is there an opportunity here to help people get more engaged? And then a bunch of things happen when you're looking for that opportunity. You're sort of saying, where is this problem maybe could, could become something good? And to say, well, 
first of all, now you're in a place where people are listening to you, but they're turned off by this. So you can do a number of things. It's not just clean up how you dress. It's focus on your audience. Like now there's an opportunity to focus on your audience in a way and see things through their eyes in a way that maybe you weren't doing beforehand, which might impact how you dress. It also might impact how you speak. It might impact the words you choose. It might impact the research you do about who you're going to be talking to. It impacts all of these things that allows you to be better than you were beforehand. It's not just the same person with a nice suit. It's someone who is completely attuned to who their audience is and how they understand what the person's saying. And this person you know, takes this issue that might've just been, hey, clean yourself up, put on a suit. And it's like, now I'm completely focused on how my messages are received by other people. And that's a, you know, a much bigger goal and objective and outcome. But they have to feel that their message isn't received uh, with, at least with the potential that it has, because if it doesn't strike anything and they're feeling and they're really unaware, you know, how he was saying, It was very rare, if ever, that feedback uh, arrived and he didn't know there was a problem. And I don't know if that's true here. For example, a person in, in our example who is just like being sloppy, do they feel, I mean, it has to be some form of art to tap into what this is getting in the way of when they sometimes are not going to be aware and, and be able to pinpoint that out and then get them on board. Beautiful, beautiful. So, so, you know, what you're saying is it, it's a blind spot, right? Like they may not, it might just be their blind spot. And what I said beforehand is it's not us imposing anything on them. So let's just say they, they say, well, first of all, they might, when we ask them permission to think it through, they might say, no, I'm fine. And, and then you say, okay. Um, and you might say, you know, notice notice if you're losing people or not, like begin to tune into these things so you can see if it's having an impact. But if I ask you permission to have a conversation about something and you say, no, I have to accept your no, right? And we can talk about what happens if I'm the boss because there's ways of doing that, you know, when, when you're the boss. Let's maybe do that a bit a second. Yeah, sure. So when you're the boss, right? You can't force someone to do anything. We know that that doesn't work right? You can offer them the opportunity. But what you can do is maintain your standards because that's your right as a boss, right? So you could say like, it's okay if you don't want to develop this part of you. That's okay. What, what I do need is for our clients to buy into your ideas and to want to work with you. I need that because otherwise you're not useful to me. Like, you know, like from, from a pure work perspective, if, you know, you're brilliant, but nobody's following what you say and nobody wants to work with you, then, then that's fine. You could continue to dress that way. You can, can, that's fine, but this may not be the right place for you, right? Because the reason your brilliance is so useful is because it's applicable. So you make that decision. That's totally up to you. But my standard for the impact that you have on our clients, I'm not going to change that. And you decide what you want to do. And by the way, you may be, and, and I'm not saying this, I wouldn't necessarily say this out loud to the person, although maybe I would, you may be more committed to not worrying about this than you are to like working here, which is also okay. Like, I think you're brilliant and I can help you in another place. But to work here, I need your ideas um, appreciated by and, and influencing the pe that, those are the people. That's what I need. And, and right now, that's not what's happening. I'm thinking that maybe then it's a matter of how convinced they are that the, the, the bridge between their issue and the outcome, you know, that there's actually correlation because they could maybe feel that the fact that they're dressed in a certain dress code because probably they're perceiving it as their dress code. And maybe they're feeling like, okay, I don't think that that's causing any issues with clients and definitely not harming my ideas coming across. So then it's a little bit of communication and getting the message across. And sometimes I guess there, there are dead ends, but I guess there's some gap to bridge there. A hundred percent. And I want to share one other piece to it, which is they might be right. Meaning the clients might be saying, I don't like the way this guy's dressed, but really what they're thinking is his thinking is unclear to us. We don't get it. And if he works on that part and doesn't change anything about his address, it might get to the outcome. And I'd be fine with that. 
So that's like part of the beauty of coaching and working with the process is I'm okay, like saying, if that's the outcome that we want his ideas to influence the people around him, that if he says, I want to try some other things before dressing differently, my view is great because we're in agreement about the outcome. Let's try whatever you want to try. It doesn't have to be my way. No way. Like his dress is actually more influential because they're like, wow, a crisp thinker and dress like that. He must be really smart. Right. And that might like that might end up working. I, I have to, I'm going to take a leap of faith here. I'm going to, I'm going to say this. Okay. So you, I think the, the, like the ideas are, are amazing, but I'm going to just say one thing. Something is very on my subjectively. I'm annoyed about something because I'm thinking about that person that you're talking to that doesn't dress well. And why am I saying that? Because I think in your relationship with Howie, okay, you said, let's say you're an ally for feedback, which was the first step. But what Howie did was not only showed that he's an ally, he showed value because he consumed the information very quickly. And then he proved as executing whatever he did, that he's a real ally and he showed value, which is easier than just saying that. And then also the, the problems with the, of the farmers and hunters Okay, so again, you're you you're showing that it's not a problem; it's an opportunity where you executed that instead of talking about that. This is the question. The question is, if I talk about something so much, usually the other person already knows the outcome is just executing it, and if it's repeatedly that I have to explain that we are allies or there is a mutual problem or a mutual goal, I usually am not satisfied with the same human being because the execution of everything that you said, okay, is is usually really easy. Let's say he wants to say, I don't want to change how he dresses. So he just does it once and says, I don't feel good with how I changed. And I feel that people have to listen to me even though I dress this way and maybe we work on our ideas. And then you feel that you have a mutual goal. You feel you have a partner, you have an ally. So on that level, how much time do you give for that opportunity to be discussed and not just wait for a normal execution or a leap of faith? Like there are definitely people with whom I have been in a relationship where it feels like I'm constantly trying to be on my best behavior because they're constantly not changing. Sort of like a like a parent with a child. Like, when are you gonna, right? And I think, you know, partly there are those dynamics and this process does not work with everyone. It's not magic. Partly there is, you know, an issue of if things take time. And I want to say like our fourth step, which we haven't mentioned yet, is to pl- a plan. And the idea of a plan is not here's the thing that's going to work, but we're both agreeing to try an experiment to gain information, to learn something. But there's there's something about the way when I've started applying this process overtly and intentionally over the last couple of years that has really changed my baseline approach to people is I'm delighted by people. Like I used to see people like very, very overweight in the supermarket with their cart full of sodas and, you know, snack cakes, and I'd have a judgment. And now I look at them and I see, boy, I can, I can, I can imagine you crossing the finish line of a marathon. Boy, what a journey that would be. Or, you know, like really like there's a difference between somebody feeling like you're just being patient with them while they screw up again and again and again versus, boy, I really appreciate who you are, what you do. I'm delighted by so many things about you. Like human beings are change machines. Like if we're not changing, it's because something's gotten stuck. And I think one of the ways we can help it get unstuck is not necessarily by pushing a process, but by being the kind of person that they can flower in the presence of. I love it. Like that woman with the sodas, why, how does she believe you? Because you're on the point, like the, the question was distract, but it's exactly that. You believe in someone instead of you're just here to do your job. How do you let them believe that you believe in them? Well, one thing is just to, to, to know that it's possible. So one of the things that I've been working on the last six years is people, helping people lose weight, helping people become healthy. So I've seen people... <laughs> go from 400 pounds to under 200 pounds. I've seen people go from diseased 
and and in pain to running hundred mile races. So I know it's possible. And partly it's a leap of faith. Partly it's saying, I believe in human beings, right? Like, you know, Anne Frank, I, I believe in the sun, even when it doesn't shine. Like there, there it's, a, it's a, this is a process that we teach in a book, but it's at a deeper level. I think it's also a practice. Like you don't get it once and you're done, but it's a practice. And Peter, I've talked about this a lot. Like it's very easy for both of us to go into critic mode and to like, you know, argue with other people and blame them for like, you know, not wanting to get vaccinated or not wearing masks or whatever. But whenever we take the time to really respect other people, get really curious about what their experience is, empathize, we always leave those conversations feeling good in our souls. Well, I love that. I really, I, I love every time you talk, it makes me happy. Um, <laughs> like, like well, there's, there's so much depth. The one thing I want to add is that people don't resist change. They resist being changed, right? You will change all the time, every day, just like how he said. But if I tried to change you, then you're going to resist it. It's loss of control. It's like, who are you, et cetera. So that dynamic gets created. So in that very first step of being an ally, which you talked about, um, this is really, really powerful to be able to go, hey, I've noticed this thing and I know you're capable. Uh, do you want to talk about it? The key piece is people will change when they have ownership over it, when they are independently capable to do it, when they have emotional courage, right? And, and when they're resilient. So if I really recognize that, the best I could do is point something out and make an offer. And if they don't pick me up on their offer, it becomes much easier for me to let go. That's really, really important. So as the person, who is wanting to make the change, I extend the offer. And if they don't take it, then I've done my thing. And in a sense, I, I'm going to, you know, forgive myself for wanting them to be different and just be in relationship with them as they are to, you know, to the extent that I can. And you're not going to criticize them inside? No, no, because it's, well, you know, I, I say no, but, but it's, but I sometimes will, but it's, you know, and, and, and then I also realize, like, I sometimes I will. And then I say to myself, like my own mantra is, it's like their choice. Like, I'm going to be available to help them. But ultimately, it's their choice. And I've stopped coaching people. Like, you know, I get paid a lot of money to coach people. And there are people where I've said, you know, this isn't working, because I want this more than you do. And that that can't work. Like, I can't want this more than you do. So, you know, when you want it, when you really want it, then it's worth spending money on me. But otherwise, it's just a waste of time and money. And also, you know, growing up with a Jewish mom, it's like, okay, you go out in the world, you know, without a sweater and catch a cold. See if I care. <laughs> exactly. It'll be your problem. And then she takes the sweater with her so that when you need it, she can give it to you. Yes. Yes. That's the description of coaching. <laughs> yeah. Guys, I think we could speak to you for hours, but we want to be respectful of your time. Um, so we're going to wrap up with uh, asking each of you what your superpower is. I'm going to let Howie go first. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, one of mine is soundtrack. Like, and almost like in a movie, there's always like, you know, sometimes there's a good song playing in the background. Mm -hmm. um, so I always have a song playing in the background <laughs> of my head. And they're very often really good songs that are like really help me sort of have the energy for a situation or just to understand it in a particular way. So I would say soundtrack. Wow. That's, that's really creative. I love it. I'm sorry. I'm going to be, I'm going to be disrespectful for a time for a second. Listen, when you, when you say that, that means, that means just to understand that the superpower is actually self-motivating yourself. Okay. And getting into the perspective or the empathetic no. zone that you need to be in front of the other person. Is that, is that what you mean? I never thought of it that way, but sure. Does that mean that you're putting the soundtrack that you need to be in the state state of mind that you need to be in in that ambiance? Yeah, I'd say so, sometimes it's 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 a I think it's it's a a manifestation of of my intuition about the situation I'm in. By the way, that actually means that your superpower is um, being empathetic, because that means you're are you changing the soundtrack to understand the other person? I don't choose it; it just it arises. <laughs> so it's. <laughs> It's divinely inspired. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah, right. Peter, good luck topping that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't really know what to say now. <laughs> uh, 
My superpower is choosing the songs that Howie listens to and his. <laughs> oh, I'm going to tell you, I hate to break it to you on the podcast, but I'm the source of the songs. <laughs> I, I hope there's no payola involved. What's What's amazing about that is uh, the speaker is the publisher. <laughs> exactly. I would say that probably my superpower, really two things came to mind. Like my superpower, which is totally outside of my control, is Hamsa, 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 my fortune, like like my good fortune. Like I feel like like I've been very, you know, also coming from, you know, the mother of a Holocaust survivor. I just feel like I've been born in the right place at the right time with the right mentors, with the right friends. Like I just have gotten very fortunate. And then I would say beyond that, it's learning. I have like such I love learning. I love it. It sounds like optimism, like optimistic, solving problems, involving and, and thinking khamsa khamsa, meaning I'm in the right place and I have what I need and I'm, I'm going forward and looking at the good, pl- playing the good songs. Yeah, playing the good songs. I'm the happy songs in your head. I don't know what the <laughs> other songs are, but... The- <laughs> You know, when you say Hamsa, at the end of the day, I don't buy into luck so much. I really, uh, I believe in the saying that luck is opportunity meeting readiness. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, and I think outlook has a lot to do with it, but I do feel like I've been pretty lucky. <laughs> Hamsa, Hamsa, Hamsa. I don't want to like <laughs> jinx it in any way. I, I, I totally get that. Um, so the book is going to be dropping and the episode is going to be live on October 1st. So people are already going to be able to buy it. Uh, where can they find it? And is there anywhere else online that people can find you that you'd like to mention? Uh, yeah, if they go to BregmanPartners.com, B-R-E-G-M-A-N Partners, plural.com, you know, they can find out everything about the book and there's lots of other resources that we have on the website. And maybe also listen to your podcast. And yeah, sure. The podcast is up there also, but also listen to the podcast. Cool. All right. Thank you so much for this, guys. Super insightful and fun. It's been such a pleasure talking with you guys. Yeah. Thank you so much. And send us the playlist. (laughs) (laughs) You want to know what's in my head right now? Yes, Yes, please. please. Yes, please. I hate you so much right now. (laughs) Kaveret, yo-ya. Oh, wow. Much nicer than what I said. The Katy Perry, I hate you so much right now. <laughs> and I feel bad because I was like, I was not going to guess the Oya in a million years. I was like, oh, more no, like, no, I, no, I was in a, I was in like, you know, a fade no more kind of, you know, lovage kind of vibe. But okay, I got it. Okay. Oh, that's great. I thought you were going to say Sheva, like one of the hard rock songs. I mean, hard uh, drumming songs. Oh, but yeah. I, I guess I didn't put that one in your head. Yeah, now he will. By the way, I'm just going to give another another thing about luck. So in Hebrew, mazal, you know the word, right? So it's it's made out of mem, which is makom, Place. being there. Okay, zayin, zman, time. time. I thought Zion was something else. Oh, no, you're fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's a difference. That's why I was in Lovage, right? And Zman and Lasot, meaning doing. So if you're in the right place, right time and doing, you will have luck. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I didn't know it either. Did you make it up now? Uh, no, I, I've been, I made it up uh, years ago. And probably when I say that, probably someone said, and I don't remember him and I'm not giving credit, but uh, it stuck with me. So I like it. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye. Real life. Superpowers. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. It's alive. Real life. Superpowers.